listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I am so over the moon to have the Liz joining me, Elizabeth Wasson, to be more formal. <laughs> um, the Liz joining uh, via technology from Washington, D.C. Um, uh, the Liz, how are you? Hello, T. I'm doing great now that I'm talking with you. <laughs> it's it's so it's so good to hear your voice. Um, this is a real it's a real joy um, to get some time with you. Um, 
the Liz, uh, just just so um, longtime listeners of Living Writers um, might remember uh, that the Liz and I had a very long collaboration uh, together. Uh, the Liz was the one uh, that was the audio engineer for the program for the Liz was it's over a decade, right? It was like, yeah, something like that. Nine years is when I stopped counting, I think. <laughs> right. right. I don't know how you put up with me for that long, to be <laughs> honest. And and we had some crazy times. And we this won't be, don't worry, everyone, this won't <laughs> be a memory lane uh, type of thing. Though we will, I really hope we can talk about the WCBN FM years as well, because I think they're kind of critical in um, in your writing and composing life, um, but it won't be all memory lane, um, but a shout out to the mobile unit, um, <laughs> long, long live the mobile unit. Um, okay, so without further ado, I'd like to start by reading the Liz's short bio um, from the site of her current occupation as managing editor of Resources Magazine, um, and I'm on rff.org and that's resources for the future right mm-hmm. Liz? okay dc-based think tank specializing in environmental economics brilliant elizabeth wasson joined rff in summer 2019 serving as managing editor of rfs resources magazine the common resources blog and the resources radio podcast wasson has years of experience as a science communicator Previously, she covered science research at the University of Michigan's College of Literature, Science, and the Arts, making complex research accessible through articles published in LSA's alumni magazine and website. She also co-created LSA's How to Science podcast. Wasson has a background in audio production and broadcasting with years of experience volunteering at WCBN-FM on Michigan's campus and producing a handful of radio shows, including Hugabug, a podcast about the weirdness of animals. She loves collaborating closely with designers, has a habit of joining book clubs, and eats cheese. The last part is well, very true. Team. Well, <laughs> I know you named your cat Havarti. <laughs> so this is a truth that this cheese thing goes deep. Mm-hmm. All angles of life, for sure. What do you mean by that? Is it, is it something about Wisconsin as well? Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, just like as a kid, opening my neighbor's refrigerator and dumping handfuls of shredded cheese into my mouth was my M.O., was so in Wisconsin does every like does this sounds like a stereotype does everyone just in their fridge have like buckets of shredded cheese or what was your neighbor just you know a dairy farm or (laughs) well I can't represent all Wisconsinites of course Uh, so all I know is my own experience and there was plenty of cheese in any refrigerator that I ever encountered there uh, (laughs) and beer too I mean it's like you know inhabited (laughs) by generations of Germans so beer and cheese is where it's at I mean I think that would be a refrigerator I would be comfortable with even during a pandemic um, and just a, and a quick shout out to, to, to you and Meg and, and Havarti and Ivy in DC and, um, 
Like how, yeah. how are you all doing? How, cause I know I let's, let's just acknowledge the times for a moment. <laughs> yeah. It's funny when people ask how, how is DC? Because I have no idea. I mean, I don't see much of the city anymore. I see uh, the four walls of our apartment and it's going fine though. I mean, we finished a puzzle. We watch lots of movies. Thankfully there's a balcony. So there's uh, more space than just the indoors. There's a park up the street. So, I mean, I'm mostly just feeling fortunate that uh, we're safe and secure and able to like continue living our lives and um, working, you know, which is more than, some can say so I just I feel good oh that's well it's so good to talk with you and I'm glad yeah I think it's important to I don't know every day even though it's you know it can be it can feel crushing the uncertainty of everything as well but I I just feel like when especially when I feel myself getting super impatient or being you know a jerk um I mean not right away but but I try to soon enough think again about, I feel really fortunate and lucky and hoping, I don't know, wishing everyone else Mm -hmm. can be too. Um, So, well, okay, let's talk. So all these, for all these years, we've talked about actually doing this. So (laughs) I feel like it's absolutely brilliant that we get a chance and thanks so much. Um, for being game for doing it. Well, thanks for having me, T. I mean, (laughs) like it's a, it's a hallowed invitation to be in living writers for sure. I'm among like the friends of living writers are, uh, are many and distinguished. (laughs) It's we've, yeah, we've talked with a lot of people, a lot of folks, right. Mm -hmm. Um, so this, so this is going to be, this is, this is going to be fun. Um, let's, Let's start by talking about in in kind of a like what you're doing now because your bio was was super focused on this in some ways um, and you've got you know you're the managing editor you're writing all the time um, basically even though you know your your name is is up there but it's like you're you're behind everything like your hand is in every all the text. Um, so what's it like being a science writer for a think tank in DC right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't, I do write a lot. You know, I, I write a lot through editing though. So I do feel like most of my experience is uh, editing and making sure that the writing of others uh, finds its place, you know? And um and, and sounds as good as it can. Uh, but I really love it. And I wanted to edit a lot more uh, as I was working as a science writer, you know, before I arrived here for like five or six years. And I think that editing is really fun just because it's like you... <laughs> Maybe as a writer yourself, T, and talking with a lot of writers, uh, the sort of um, mantra that comes to, or the the thing that writers say that comes to my mind is that um, writing is just like a devastating pain, but <laughs> having written is what feels so great. And so it's just nice to have, like, have a draft sent to me, right? And then just be able to, like, do the the 
like the kind of fun part. It's already written. And so I'm already like enjoying it by the time it arrives at my desk. And then just kind of like being able to um, make it even uh, to get to a finished product that everybody enjoys and to deliver to the reader in a way that will be uh, most readable, most compelling, most drawing of them into the article is like what I find to be really, really fun. And that and like, as you write in my bio, like working closely with designers to complement the text with visual, visually compelling, uh, I guess, windows or um, hooks that can further draw people into the article or that can interpret the article mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a way that takes you steps further is a blast, a complete blast. Oh, I'm, I love that you're loving it so much, you know, but it's, 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 it seems to me um, that it's also um, a delicate art that you're doing, like the job of the editor um, and you're having the vision and you're shaping um, these, these many pieces from different people that are coming in the text that's being um, delivered to you. And you talk about like the, the a finished product that everybody enjoys. So what is it like then working with the writers of the text that you then edit? Yeah, I mean, I, it is not my product. Uh, and I am happy to work with folks to, uh, you know, like further kind of sculpt what they have written into, as you say, like something that everybody can enjoy, but it's, it's first and foremost theirs and their ideas. So I'm really just kind of shuttling it along. And, um, one thing that I have read before, um, that I that resonates with me and I think works is that like I don't know you have to strike a balance between uh kind of you know making the tone consistent like if you're making a magazine then it is ideal to have the visual and the text tone be consistent Mm -hmm. in the entire thing um but it's but you also want to be uh um, like have fidelity to the author's voice. And so it is getting out of the way uh, and ensuring that their voice comes through um, so that it's unique, but fits, I guess. And so it's like, I think it's a really, really fun challenge. It Well, it sounds like it would be a real challenge. And the, the way that you're coming at it though is how it could be successful like with everyone being like the writers being really happy because feeling supported like even the way you describe it you know how it's unique like to that person so recognizing their individuality but but it fits unique but fits I don't Mm -hmm. know I think this um this so editing it's not something that you did a lot of is it before you arrived at this this place at yeah no RFL. I wouldn't say so I mean uh with the podcast is probably the the how to science podcast at LSA is probably the right. 
the furthest I got along those lines, but um, but no, yeah, this is all I observed a lot and I read a lot about it, but I haven't put it into practice until you know in the past year since I've been here, and it's great. And uh, you know, the writing and the voice of everybody is very unique, and also I think what you're alluding to is working with people, you know, working with each individual author uh, is a unique experience that you also need to take into account when it comes to how are they going to feel about these edits? What are they trying to say with this? What are their goals? And all of that is really fun. I mean, that's basically creating relationships with people that you hope will have longevity. And so you, you want to have a light touch there in some ways as well. And what are some of, um, yeah, I love that, the idea of, of, of a light touch with people and also feeling like they, they know that you want to make it the best it can be, right, the piece. Um, like, how does that, is it possible to even give an example, like say how you do it? Hmm. Uh, well, this I don't know if this is the example that you're looking for, but it starts right with if you if I let's say go in to talk to somebody to get quotes from them for a Q and A, for example. So this is yeah, this is not exactly what you're talking about. But let's start. Yeah, here, no, I'd love it. A collaboration. Yeah, and so there are some pieces that I've done where uh, you don't see that I'm the one who's asking these questions. But in any case, I'll go into uh, one of our researchers' office, let's say Karen Palmer, an economist at Resources for the Future. And I, I went into her office and I had my little recorder. And I start by saying, you know, like, is it okay to record our conversation and just know that I'm doing this just so that I can be as accurate as possible? And um, and be able to quote you accurately, but if there's anything that should be off the record or that you know uh, that you don't think will suit the piece, it's not that they're getting an editorial voice there, but I just want to reassure them, like we don't have to use that and we won't. You know, we'll figure out how to get what we need in the piece without you feeling uncomfortable about it. And that might not be how all journalists work, but um, but I think that's really important to inspire confidence in the author or the collaborator and just make sure that everybody is getting what they need out of the piece. I mean, we're not writing gotcha pieces. We're not doing (laughs) investigative journalism here. Uh, So it is a matter of like just setting that tone of um, comfort and um, respect and reliability. And I think that goes a long way. And another thing that goes a long way when it comes to that kind of article, uh, more collaborative piece, or if I'm writing is um, to come in knowing about the topic, you know, like having done your research. And I think that is not the case for some people that I've encountered where they're surprised that I'm asking them questions, uh, that I guess that they didn't, they didn't expect that I would have the background to it, or they were surprised that I've read their book. (laughs) And it's like, even doing little things like that go an enormous way for them to be like, Oh, okay. You know, there's trust here. And so if you're going to edit this piece, then like, I trust you and I I trust where you're going to take this. Uh, And so I think that, but to, to get a more direct answer to your original question is that you can do that in different ways too, for if somebody like hands you a piece 
you can just express to them in whatever way, you know, is authentic to you. Like you can trust me basically. And I trust you too. So let's like work together to get this to be in the best place that we can. I'm so glad they are so lucky to have you. Like what a great, what great leadership skills. Oh, oh my God. I, Cause I, there's not, cause the, the fact that you were talking about how it's a blast and it's really fun editing. It's, you know, I'm not sure that a lot of writers, um, I mean, so, you know, you, you've, mm-hmm. you've heard people talk about it, um, over the years with living writers too. Like sometimes people will be like, Oh, I had this really important editor gave me this insight, you know? Um, but there's other people that have not such good experiences. Um, and so it's interesting to hear you talk about, um, it as a collaboration too, seems, seems just right. And it's, it's interesting to me because hearing you talk about working with collaborating with the writers themselves and building that trust, it's, it is just that one-to-one, like if you're interviewing someone or if you're, you're doing research, like you said, for the, the Q and a, um, having, knowing something about maybe trying to understand their position. Cause of course you always want to leave it open for what it is that you're asking them to, um, of course, but to show that you've, you're trying to understand their position and that you've, you're coming in with some research. Mm-hmm. Um, you really key. Well, okay. Well, let's, let's talk about this idea. Cause one of the, the things, um, that resources magazine does and the podcast and the blog, um, the mission, it feels like, like what, what it's saying it's doing is, is actually, um, it's making, um, science and expertise accessible. Um, it doesn't have to be difficult. So, um, can you talk a little bit about, the, the value of that mission um, and why you chose to, to use your, your talents and your skills here? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess most immediately or like the closest part of that experience that you're asking about uh, is the importance of the scientific method, I think. Um, and I just, when, you know, I, I got my PhD at the University of Michigan. And um, so my background is in science and the scientific method. And I think working in science for years and years for so long made me see it from all angles and realize that even when you're reading a newspaper about who you want to vote for in the next presidential election, to take a hypothetical example, and look at all the, you know, all the relevant news from from the recent months or whatever, then there's a lot of voices in there. There's a lot of facts thrown about. There's a, a just complex stories to follow and to use the scientific method to kind of create your own hypotheses and accumulate evidence uh, or data to apply to see whether your assumptions are right and then just come up with the sort of like theory, I guess, for how you're viewing the world. I mean, 
the scientific method is applicable in all areas. And so at Resources for the Future, where we publish the magazine and the blog and the podcast, uh, the big goal is to get research in front of decision makers and policymakers, like rigorous economic research, so that uh, that kind of science, you know, can contribute to making good decisions. And in our case, um, preserving the environment while not breaking the bank. So uh, it can be really easy, right, to like want to throw everything behind conservation and make sure that the world is okay. But we also understand that people need to have business, to like, survive, to extract resources, and to balance those two things is what we hope to do by putting rigorous research in front of policymakers and decision makers. And so the scientific method is important. They're making it understandable to people who don't have you know degrees in science and have just a completely different background is really important. Uh, and then, so that's the the most sort of recent and most relevant to my current experience. Uh, but, you know, another thing that led me happily to writing about science in the first place was <laughs> being a PhD <laughs> student and uh, having to narrow down my focus to the uh, system that was manageable uh, so mm. that I could collect data and ask a question that I could answer mm. required me to pick a very small focus, you know, so I was working on plant farts, as you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, the trace gases that plants emit in response to herbivore damage in my case. So I was looking at um, monarch caterpillars and milkweed plants. And it was just, it was very narrow for me. And I saw uh, that others were also working on, you know, kind of reductionist science, uh, where you were working on a very small corner of the world, and you also had to kind of sell it as the most important thing, yes. right? Uh, and so, and not all of that basic science can or should be put in front of decision makers and policy makers, or not all of that basic science or any other kinds of projects find a place in a magazine that a broad audience will read. And so it was really exciting for me to look at these two prongs of communication where it's like, what you want is to get your work out there. You want people to know about this stuff and get excited about this stuff. And then also to, for me to be in a position to like help curate what kind of work can end up in a magazine for a broad audience was important to me too. Cause I honestly, not everything fits there. Uh, and to be able to figure out, uh, what can be of interest and what can make a good story for a broad audience, um, in the important kinds of science or economics that you're working with is like fun and important. Yeah. And I and like it. And for now, too, it's it's like mm -hmm. that's part of the curation, isn't it? Trying to figure out what is it about today and the recent past and the 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 future, right? That that people need to start thinking about. And then if you're you're curating it, then so with articles, but then putting together issues as well. Um, or trajectories for your podcast. Um, that that is that that is so so interesting to think about what it is that you think 
in some ways people need to be informed of. And that's part of editing too, and that is no small task. And it's really important to work from a sort of philosophy and a foundation that sets goals that make sense to the organization, for example, or make sense to the world or to your audience, and then figure out how to get from where you are now to that goal through the stories that you tell. And um, yeah, that takes practice, that takes advice from others, that takes teamwork, uh, that takes thought. How did you set, so it's, cause it sounds, it all sounds right when you say it, you know? So how do you work from a philosophy and set goals? Like how was, how did you imagine it walking in to resources for the future? You know, cause you're walking into something that's been established and gone through changes over time. Um, but now you're steering it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting project in getting out of the way, I think, and um, homing in on what I can contribute and doing it in service to the broader mission. Mm. So, and it, that is different from writing about science per se, which was my expertise. And I had, you know, thoughts and experience and opinions about that. And then coming into something new and just being happy to defer to folks who have been in this work for decades and just asking them what is important and uh, taking time, you know, and just part of it is being patient, I think, with accumulating the time of talking to people and being around and observing and experiencing these things and being able to fit all the pieces together of we have these individual researchers who are working on various projects and following the what is coming up in the news and trying to match right where the expertise of our economists is relevant to the broader world and just um what was that <laughs> am i answering your question yes Nancy? yes yeah definitely and I, I wanted to to just note that it's the second time too that you said getting out of the way like that like as that's so that's part of your philosophy literally I think so. I mean, <laughs> and I, I wonder what other people's perspective is on managing, but it's a first for me too, this idea of being the managing editor to have a team that I, I help, you know, kind of lead is uh, what what are people's working styles when it comes to that? And it seems like one strategy is to just make sure that you set that foundation again, right? And then let let the foundation speak to how you go about accomplishing your goals. And so if we have our organizational goals and we set a foundation of just like hiring really smart people who are motivated and can do the job well, then yeah, I think it makes sense to get out of the way as much as possible <laughs> and provide guidance where it's necessary, but yeah, not try to, not try to put your fingerprints on everything. I think it's a lesson in humility in some ways. It's it's very generous too. It seems like um, service leadership, and and you did say like what you know, trying to hone in on what I can contribute in service mm -hmm. to the ideas. So yeah, service leader. Um, 
that, yeah. Well, I, I, I can't deny my ties to Ann Arbor, right? And so that's, that's very much an Ari Weinzweig and Zingerman's philosophy that also translated in a lot of ways to Michigan. And so I hope that uh, that sort of generosity of spirit um, is like in my DNA at this point. Oh, I think, yeah. Well, from um, listening to you talk about this, the Liz, I would, I would say I think it is. I do. And it, it's not, it's not like it didn't take a while to, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, I, um, i I wonder if from the, the time you spent as a science writer here, um, at Michigan for a magazine here, right. Um, and being on the other end of work or well, like working in a team, but also having someone who was the manager of that team. Um, I think that you've got experience um, knowing what it's like uh, mm-hmm. it, to work in, in, in these different positions. And I think that informs um, mm-hmm. how you decide, to, you know, how you've decided to be. Um, wow. Well, I didn't mean to say something so simplistic there. Well, I, I <laughs> That's my big reveal. But anyway. <laughs> I think it, it's worth a shout out. I definitely lear- have learned a lot over the years uh, from all angles. So that's certainly true. So how did writing audio, which is a way I kind of think of when you did, um, when I, when you, you did How to Science with Monica Deuce, um, but also Hugabug. Um, your podcast, Hugabug, like writing for audio, how did it Mm -hmm. change your experience as a writer or how did it grow it? That's really an interesting uh, question and conversation that I've had with lots of folks over the years, actually, because it, uh, so I, after I graduated from Michigan, as you know, I spent some time in an RV and was rolling around. And that's when I was creating the Hugabug podcast. And I was releasing like a five minute episode weekly. And so that meant, and I was doing that basically in real time. And so what that meant was that I was like choosing what kind of story was really interesting in the natural world and then uh, doing a lot of research on it and then writing up a, a five minute radio script and one thing that I had to do was record that by reading the script myself and that totally changes the writing style and how you think about or how I thought about writing and uh how I thought about an article or a piece so Um, how yeah, let's talk well, about that. Well, when you that. read it, it's it's completely different. And especially if what you want to do is translate something complex so that people can read it, understand it, and enjoy it, is like a conversational tone is really useful for that goal. And having obviously having to read that script out loud helps you to hear whether you are being conversational, whether you're using language that's too complex, whether you're, you know, writing for the page. I think, I don't know, maybe there's a place for that. I think certainly traditionally and conventionally, there is a place for that where it's like people don't think about the words as potentially being off the page. And so they can be really sophisticated. The sentence structure can be really long and complex. Uh, you, you don't think about what sticks in people's mind at the beginning of a sentence versus like at the end of that idea, 
in the way that you do when you're speaking. So you want to front load it with the important information that then leads to the subsequent details, right? When you're speaking or when you're writing a script for radio. Whereas if you're just writing with the knowledge that it will only be on the page, then it doesn't really matter because people can go back and reread the sentence or refer to something else. So it's just like with the different experience of reading or listening, it creates a different responsibility for writing it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that starts to answer your question, but I know that was a little convoluted. So. No, no, I think, but I think you're right. I think there's, there's more to say too, because when you're, when you're talking about writing a script as well, um, like for five minutes, that's actually quite, because you're compressing, um, a lot of, like you said, complex information. Um, but also maybe it's like, it becomes even more important, like what you don't include in it because you're having to choose from the complexity or, or so. Mm What do you think? Yeah. Well, and that is definitely related to editing as well. And I think I just, I lucked into some, uh, some mentors, I guess, who were, are really good at writing. And so, I mean, one thing there that has helped guide my writing and editing, I suppose, is just writing a one sentence summary can be a lifesaver. So getting like thinking of what your overarching idea is fitting it into one sentence and ensuring that everything that you include in the piece that you're writing is in service to that idea then that is just really helpful when it comes to figuring out what to include and what to leave on the cutting room floor um Hmm. and yeah, and and I think that's true of what we have been talking about too. Like if we can kind of stretch the analogy to talk about foundations for the function of the magazine that we put out as an organization. If you understand your mission and your goals from the outset, then you that can direct what articles end up in the magazine, for example. Well, because it's true, because you said earlier um, about Resources Magazine that some things like they're important but they don't fit Mm -hmm. yeah I mean trying to it's just like a matter of kind of doing it getting your feet wet in uh working with various channels so here uh as you said you know there's a magazine that we put out we have a blog and we have a podcast and we don't reproduce all of the work across all of those channels and so to figure out where these things fit even when it comes to how to kind of deliver it then that's another question that's really really interesting and how do they fit together yeah 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 or speak to each other right <laughs> right if 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 someone's coming to all of them right or if somebody's only coming to one of them (laughs) yeah that that seems even trickier then it's it's fun and it's fascinating i think and so with how how are you deciding because it feels like as part of the mission with this idea of 
there is a broader audience definitely it's anyone you can subscribe the magazine is beautiful like you can get a print edition um several times a year right as well as like accessing um the website to have um different stories and articles and infographics released right um but how i don't know how do you decide with enough lead time, what you want to put in front of policymakers as well as this this broader audience, but thinking about maybe that that primary audience that inspired this think tank to begin with. Uh, I mean, that's something that I'm continuing to learn, right? But uh, maybe a, a good example is their most recent magazine, which was actually the theme was suggested by two of the researchers at RFF. And so this year happened to be the 50th anniversary of the 1970 amendments to the Clean Air Act. It was also the 50th birthday of Earth Day. Yes. <laughs> and it was the 50th birthday also of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And so all of those things just came together in this magazine and all of the content fell together in that way. And, um, you know... Whether it it is certainly relevant to policymakers and decision makers, some of these, uh, like one of the really interesting elements of this magazine is very much in the news right now, which is about how to calculate the net benefits of the implementation of a policy. And so that will determine like whether you implement that policy and how you do it. And so what has happened in the past three or four years is that the calculation of those net benefits has changed very much. And um, so there's this idea of calculating the co-benefits, which is the indirect benefits of a policy. And uh, and there are a couple articles in here that speak to that, and it's it, it all kind of fell together when it came to thinking about how EPA works, what the history of EPA has been over the past five decades and how all of that relates to the Clean Air Act. Um, so it just happens to be a really nice example of um, all of the materials just coming together really nicely. And that had a lot to do with the experience of the researchers and just the, the timeliness of everything. So I hope that answers that question. But it, I guess like if you were to distill it, it would be uh, kind of deferring to the expertise of the folks who are working there, um, thinking ahead, uh, understanding what the timely context is and so figuring out how to hook things to the current news and then just making it compelling and beautiful enough so that if the policymakers we send this to you know if it lands on their desk then maybe because the cover is so beautiful for example or because some of these <laughs> infographics work then hopefully it's packaged in a way that the really like fascinating and relevant information in here uh kind of reaches them yeah, I, I have to say that I loved the design, like the use um, of infographics or how, um, like the layout of the page. Um, and I've, yeah, I felt like it was made things where uh, there was a, like, 
longer articles that you could read or more text, but then you could also, even how it was phrased, I'm trying to see where I wrote, jotted down some notes about it. It was just also very friendly. It was almost like, um, it reminded me of Stephen Hawking's book. Like it was like a brief history of, and I don't think it was like mats, like the mercury and air toxic standards, but it was, maybe it was, but you know, it was just how it was laid, laid out then it felt inviting. And also, um, like I could absorb it or digest it. And it was, and it was this interplay of text and image or, or the text that was chosen. Um, yeah. And so part of that is just my kind of personal fascination with art and, um, and that kind of, uh, like packaging and complementary visuals. And a lot of it has to do with the designer that I collaborate closely with James round, who is based in the UK. Um, but yeah, we work very closely to figure out how to make sure that the visuals complement the text well. And, uh, yeah, that's something I got started with uh with the really talented designers over at michigan uh and it's just a lot of fun and i think it does make a difference well it creates an experience for your your reader well and it it sets a tone i mean it says that we're serious about making this uh, a quality publication right we're investing the resources into it as a whole. Um, and then it's just like the whole idea is, you know, we're trying to package very complex stuff just as in an article package, complex materials into a vehicle that is accessible to people. And I think beautiful, like making, making yes. this beautiful does that too. Right. Because something that's beautiful will be engaging, but but also something that can be clear and understandable then can be more beautiful, because mm-hmm. you're you're invited into it. Like because because some of the the topics they're you know um, thinking about like s- the steel industry and pollution, and it's not necessarily something um, that I would n- necessarily think you know, oh, mm. this is something I definitely yeah. have It doesn't see. necessarily, sorry to interrupt you, uh, but it, it, no, it, no, please. I think like what you're making me think of is that it doesn't, these topics don't necessarily lend themselves to like paintings, which some of these illustrations sort of feel like, but yeah, to have that dual language of really getting serious about the you know as you're saying like the steel industry but also having like a playful illustration next to it i think is is yes. a really cool duality i guess well it is and it will it also and I, that's why i think like it makes it a different experience and it makes it more accessible for example like to speak like concretely about an image that that folks can check out on resourcesmagazine.org um it's in the most it's in issue 204 um it's 
connected to the article looking back at 50 years of the Clean Air Act of 1970 that the Liz just mentioned earlier. And the image is just, it's wonderful. It's playful, yet also super serious. It's a, a woman is pictured blowing out um, a cake that on the top of the cake, um, the layer cake is a factory. So the factory stacks are the candles Mm -hmm. and then but what she's blowing is like a plume of pollution smoke and it's so it's amazing yeah well and that's thanks to james he actually made that illustration but what i love about some of these images and and these collaborations is that it is not it doesn't stop short at being beautiful it's beautiful with substance so that's a really interesting and compelling concept i think to have the the factory smokestacks double as birthday candles that are being blown out is really cool. Or another one that I really like is from the prior issue, issue 203, where one or two years ago, the second woman to win the Nobel Prize was Esther Duflo. And so we had a Q&A about, well, it's, it's the article is called It's a Good Time for Women to Win the Nobel Prize, <laughs> which has a double meaning. It's a good time. It really is. It's really fun. And <laughs> it's, it's downright it's, the time. Yeah, it's days. definitely time. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the accompanying illustration is by uh, Maria Fabrizio. And the concept actually came from us, but uh, it's flipping a coin. So it's like the, oh, yes. the Nobel medal you know, has the dude on it. Yes. But then we literally have a coin flip that goes <laughs> up the whole column of the page of the magazine and it flips so that uh, the other side of it is depicted with a woman on it. And I just think the, the conceptual creativity is, uh, makes it, it really adds value, you know, for the illustrations that complement the piece because it also is saying something not just looking like something yeah exactly and it's and because then your 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 reader or your viewer um has the experience puts it together for themselves with your help because you've it's guided but like there's something where then you're you're in it too yeah i think that's cool if the connections need to be made by the reader that makes it stick a little better too ah the liz I've loved talking with you. (laughs) Same as usual. Um, Yes, I can't, I can't believe this is, the time has flown. And I feel like um, there's always, of course, more to say, but I've, I've loved this. And, and thank you so much. Uh, Thanks, T. Today on the program, Elizabeth Wasson, uh, Resources for the Future, um, head to resourcesmag.org. Remember, you can also uh, become a donor and get print editions of these these beautiful issues that are accessible online, but you also would have a different experience with the print edition in your hand, too, and rff.org. Um, so thanks everyone for listening uh many 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 thanks to the liz elizabeth wasson i'm t hetzel until next time Maybe I'm in love with you Maybe I'm in love with you
Maybe I'm in love with you. Maybe I'm in love with you. I say maybe. Maybe I'm in love with
Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave Dad You're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Yo. Can you hear it? 